This week, Susie and I uh, decided, well, it, was, it started off as Susie and I, she fell asleep halfway through it, but we decided to watch a movie, an older movie, which I'd watched before called Master and Commander. You ever seen that movie, Russell Crowe? It's set back in 1801, and Russell Crowe, known as Captain Jack, is the captain of a, a relatively small, a smaller a British Navy ship called the Surprise. Not a very intimidating name for a Navy ship, but it's called the Surprise. And they encounter a much larger, much more sophisticated and technologically advanced French ship, which attacks them twice, almost sinks them. But eventually, because of Captain Jack's loyalty to his mission, perseverance in the face of difficulty, an unwavering focus to get the job done, against all odds, he attacks and eventually defeats and captures this French vessel. And it's an amazing depiction that apparently is based on some uh, other historical events of similar ilk. Well, the message that we're going to look at in Philippians today is a message about the same lessons applied to our spiritual journeys as Christians. We're going to learn today about the need to persevere, to press forward, to remain loyal to the mission that God has called us to with the knowledge. And of course, Captain Jack didn't know if he was going to win, but we have the knowledge from God that God's enemies will be subdued and we will ultimately be victorious because Jesus is victorious and we have resurrection life and hope because of that. And so we choose, not because we're spiritual tough guys, but because we serve the Lord Jesus Christ, we choose to say we will never quit. We will never give in. We will remain focused on what God has called us to do. So let's get into the text. Previous to this, Paul had declared that he wished to attain... That's the word he used, and gain resurrection through Christ. Now, what he didn't mean by that, as we previously preached, is that he was going to earn it, but he was going to receive it rather because Christ had already attained it for him. And since resurrection is the culmination of our salvation from sin, I mean, at the end of the day, that's what we're all looking forward to, to be resurrected from the grave, which is sin's ultimate punishment. And to be with the Lord, we, were, we remain focused on the Lord. So with that in mind, then, as we enter into the latter part of the chapter, we're called to remain focused on our mission and our destination and never, never, ever to back off of that mission, never to waver. So then the question is, very practically, how do we remain focused with so many distractions? You look around, it's like, the world's falling apart. How do I stay focused? Maybe you lost your job. How do you stay focused? Maybe you've been abandoned by friends or family members. How do you stay focused? Maybe you're sick. How do you stay focused? Maybe you feel tempted a lot. How do you stay focused? This is the question that the text answers for us, and it's super applicational. Here's the first way we just press on. Notice what it says in verse 12. Not that I have obtained this, Already, not that I've already obtained this 
or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So right out of the gates, we learn that we don't need to be perfect in order to persevere. Paul declares, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. We have Jesus for that. Did you hear me? You don't need to be perfect to persevere. You have Jesus for that. It's the perfection of Christ, the holiness of Christ that is granted to us, that is applied to us so that we can press on. We don't press on by our own energies, by just burning a few more calories or psyching ourselves up. You might have noticed the power of positive thinking movement in our culture. You hear people, you see people post this on their Facebook walls. You know, the devil came and tried to attack me and I reminded myself, I am strong. No, you're not. We're all spiritual weaklings and we're sinful. Our power source doesn't come from within. It comes from without and beyond. But then it's put within because we're also indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And since it was Christ's resurrection that saved us, we pressed forward till the day when it becomes a reality for us as well. It was his gain, his attainment, his victory that is our source. So if you might have wrongly been taught the doctrine of total sanctification, well, we're being corrected here, aren't we? Some folks teach that in this life, it's possible to get to a point where you no longer sin. Well, if that's the case, you've won up Paul, who was commissioned by God to write numerous New Testament books. The apostle Paul, inspired by God to write Holy Scripture, admits straight up, I'm not perfect either. This is a critical lesson for us. Total sanctification, total perfection is both unrealistic and it's actually unnecessary to be used of by God. Paul wasn't perfect. God uses us in our weakness. Paul talked about that in 2 Corinthians. And so we don't stay out of the game because, well, I don't have my act together yet. There are Christians, perhaps even among us today, that aren't serving to their full capacity, that aren't worshiping to their full capacity, and aren't walking with Christ to their full capacity because they know there's sin in their lives. They're like, man, I'm not, I'm not perfect like all those people at church seem to be. And so they just stay on the sidelines. Do athletes think that way? Is there any athlete that stays in the bench, that sits in the bleachers until such time as they are absolutely perfect in their capacity to execute their skill sets? No, they're learning progressively. Each game, hopefully they get a little bit better. Each season, they progress a little bit more. In the same way, our sanctification is progressive. We grow to be more like Christ over time and with practice. But we need to know this. Our power is borrowed power. It doesn't come from within. Our power is borrowed power. It is Christ's power operational within each of us. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward 
to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature, you want to be mature? Everybody wants to be mature. If you want to be mature, listen to this. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything else you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. And never, never make the mistake of thinking that you're going to progress in your spiritual walk all by your lonesome. Don't make that mistake. It's a critical error. Now, obviously, some people are clearer thinkers. They may come from a little bit more squeaky clean pasts. They may have less baggage. They may have more family support. They may come from a culture that is more Christian. And so when they step into the Christian game, they they have issues, they have sin in their lives, but it may not be as obvious or as crippling as others. And then there's folks that come from extremely difficult backgrounds. But regardless of what your background might be, your ultimate power source must and can only be the Lord Jesus Christ. His perfection applied to you. His victories become yours. His mission is yours. Wallowing in your past sin, your guilt, or your inadequacy is one of the devil's choice tactics to take you off course, to help you to lose focus. What does Paul say? Well, he says, I do not consider that I've made it my own. I'm not taking credit for it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not taking credit for it. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. I'm not going to spend time thinking about past failures and past mistakes. I'm not going to take my eyes off the prize or the one that secured the prize for me. Now, the devil, of course, doesn't want you to hear this message. Because the devil loves to whisper into our ears, hey, Aaron, remember when, fill in the blank, remember when you did this or said that. And yeah, no one else maybe noticed, but I noticed. And he loves us to wallow in our guilt and in our shame. Now, of course, when we sin as Christians, we should feel remorseful and convicted. We're into that. But what we're not into is wallowing in a sense of condemnation. Romans 8.1 says something about that. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those of us who are in Jesus Christ. No condemnation. So we're into conviction, but we're not into condemnation. Conviction motivates. Condemnation slows us right down to a screeching halt and often sends us backwards. So if you're here today and you're like, you know what, there's sin in my life. Well, know this, everyone else is thinking the exact same thing that happens to be honest in the room right now. And while we are not easy on sin, we we discipline sin, we deal with sin. When we are repentant, we repent. If there's restitution that needs to be made, we make restitution and we move forward. We get back in the game. No matter what the sin might be, we get back in the game and we continue to press on. How many of us at times in our lives have been sidelined from the Christian mission because of guilt? We spend more time thinking about what we did, what we said, or what we shouldn't have done 
what we shouldn't have said than we do about what the Lord Jesus Christ did and has said to us. And it slows us down. And when this happens, the devil has us by the throat. What's God's advice? Look at, look at God's advice here. Forgetting. Forgetting what lies behind. Forget it. I always appreciate when Christian brothers and sisters come to me and confess their sins. But I'm always very careful when they're confessing their sins to process, why are you confessing your sins to me? Because frankly, I don't want to know most of your past sins unless it's somehow super relevant to our relationship. There's no reason for you to regurgitate to me all the things that you've done in your life. I don't need to know that. And you don't need to know everything that I've done. If I have forget, repented of my sins and put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're in the forgetting business because God is also in the forgetting business. Our sins are separated as far as the East is from the West. And instead, again, of wallowing in past guilt, we need to press on toward the goal. Now, the goal, of course, is God's ultimate glory through our salvation and obedience. This is how mature people think. Immature people wallow in the past. Immature people remind others of their sin. Immature people never forgive others. Immature people always hold their past failures against them. Mature people forget about it and they move forward. So let's hold on to the victories you have made, we have made through Christ and may they motivate you to press on. Let's live in the moment and look forward to the future. Secondly, if we're going to persevere, it's a good idea to follow godly examples. Verse 17 says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. There's a lot of Christians that apparently have never read this verse because they appear to have no appreciation for participation in the body of Christ. Their mind says, it's just, it's just me and Jesus, man. It's just me and Jesus having a relationship. I get all my direction from him. I don't need to be part of a church. I don't need mentors. I don't need to be discipled. I have a Bible. I have the Holy Spirit. Everyone else stinks. Everyone's a failure. I can't learn anything from you, and I certainly would never su suggest that you could learn anything from me. They fail to understand that the word of God itself frames up biblical Christianity as an imitative faith. And we are called to look for good examples to follow. Verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So there's good examples and there's also bad examples to be aware of. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. In other words, they think horizontally, not vertically. They think in a human way, not in a godly way. At the onset of this cluster of verses, we're reminded that Christianity is an imitative faith. So I want to challenge your thinking a little bit on this. Is it possible that one of the things that has slowed your growth as a Christian is that you have sort of a, a notion of radical autonomy. It's just, you know, you're in charge of your own fate, your own spiritual life. 
And you, you don't necessarily surround yourself with godly wise people who can speak into your life. This kind of radical autonomy, which actually comes more of Western culture into the church than it comes out of the scripture into the church, because we live in a, in a, in a society that emphasizes, above all other things, self-government, self-choice, self-determination, self-will, etc., blinds many people to the spiritual growth that is available to them because they literally alienate themselves meaningfully from other Christians within the body of Christ. And it's a sad thing to observe. Those that would come to church and literally year after year after year, they never serve, ever, ever. They're always late. Which, by the way, is usually, if someone is habitually late, it's usually a demonstration that they have control issues. I don't abide by the rules. I don't follow the agenda. I show up to church when I want, under my, my sir. I don't care if I'm distracting other people from worship or not. They're, they're always late. They criticize the ministry, usually from a position of relative naivety, they're infrequent in their attendance. They're, they're easily offended. So even when, when they preach these sermons, you won't see them the next week. This is the radical autonomy that invades the church. And folks, if it's, if it's in your life, even in seed form, it will cripple your advancement as a disciple of Jesus Christ. We are called to pursue and surround ourselves with godly examples. We learn so much from one another. There's nothing that was said from this microphone today from any of the candidates that were being baptized that I hadn't heard in some way, shape, or form before. And yet I was blessed by every single one of them. We're an example to each other. We rub off on each other. When we hear other people talk about God's work, when we observe other people persevere and sacrifice much, there's so much blessing in that. So if you've established your life in such a way that you have all these self-protection mechanisms in place, maybe because you've been hurt in the past or haven't found the perfect church yet, where you've, you've robbed yourself of godly influencers, change, reorganize your life, surround yourself with people that can speak into your life. Set aside control for community. See, others provide, as the word of God says, good examples. The Bible says when we're around wise people, we grow wise. That's how it works. We rub off on one another. We don't have all the goodness and gifts and perspective in and of ourselves to meaningfully persevere. We need people of different backgrounds, different stories, different gifts to speak into our lives. There's an interesting phenomenon that takes place in animal breeding, and it's called heterosis or hybrid vigor. So if you take, many of you know that I have cattle, we have Hereford cattle and we have black Angus. And if I take a Hereford bull and I breed it to a Hereford cow, and we get a Hereford calf, it will grow at a reasonable rate. If I take a black Angus bull and I breed it to a black Angus cow, it will breed, it will grow at a reasonable rate. 
But it is astonishing when you cross a Hereford with an Angus, how fast these calves grow. Because the parents are genetically dissimilar, when you crossbreed them, they get hybrid vigor. They have the, the, the benefits and blessings of the other mixed into them. And these calves will often reach the height of their parents in about six months, whereas the purebreds, it will take them about a year and a half. And this happens when you're breeding rabbits. If you have a crossbred dog, it'll live an average of 1.2 years longer than a purebred. Why? Because when you take things that are, that are different, but still of the same species, there's a, there's a benefit. There's a benefit to being around people that are different, that have a little different story, a little different background to you. We're all of the same species. We're all Christians. But if we just make the mistake, we're just, I'm just going to hang out in my little herd, the same herd that I've been hanging out in for 30 years, we're going to become an echo chamber. We're just going to share all the, the thinking we've always shared. We're just going to agree with each other because we always agree with each other. You see what I'm, the point I'm making? There's a benefit and there's a blessing to exposing ourselves to people that are different, that come from a different background than us, but are still part of the same family. So expand your gene pool and build relationships with other Christians. Now, at the same time, there are those on the other side of the, the fence who are enemies of the cross. We need to be concerned about them. So we we're told to look for good examples, but we're also told to avoid bad examples. And the bad examples, there's a couple characteristics that are evident in their lives. Number one, they follow carnal appetites. In other words, they think humanly. Now, we're all humans, and we think as humans. But if our minds and lives are not invaded with God's revelation and God's personhood, then it's, it's hard for us to see the big picture because humanly speaking, we're flawed. We believe in the doctrine of total depravity. We're sinners from conception and by choice. So we're sort of damned for two reasons, because we're sons and daughters of Adam and because we also sin. Pretty bleak. Thinking like a human can at times benefit you, but it can also take you down the proverbial garden path, the path of destruction. God invades our world to help us to think more clearly. He helps us to understand who we are, why we're here, what our purpose is, what salvation is, where we're headed and everything we need to know about him and his plan of salvation. But carnal people don't think about that. They just think about their physical pleasure. They just make their decisions based upon their, their earthly goals. They just think about their physical safety. We see that in the world. Such a sad indictment of the Western worldview where people are just fixated on their physical safety, if people put as much energy into their spiritual safety as they do into their physical safety, if our government would enact laws that were as concerned with people's spiritual safety as they were with their, our physical safety, we'd see a revival in our country like that. But this is part of the, the carnal, the, the human, the horizontal worldview. They think earthly thoughts. In other words, their worldview, their, their perception on life, the way they answer all the big questions. Who am I? How'd I get here? Where am I going? To whom am I accountable? 
All the big questions of life, those are worldview questions, are completely uninformed by creator God. Be careful of folks like that. Watch for those that will lead you astray. There's there's lots of enemies to be had. There are the legalists. Watch for them. Sometimes they come into churches. Legalism, now we're into law. We are into rules that God has given to us. There are things that God, you know, God's got a few thou shalt and thou shalt nots in the scriptures. But legalism is this notion that if you just check the list off, if you're orthodox in your actions, well, you're, you're definitely on your way to heaven. And it undermines grace. It undermines the cross. Antinomians, those are those without law. Those that would come into the church and kind of be, they're radical spiritual libertarians. There's no rules. There's freedom in Christ. I've been saved by grace, so I can do whatever I want. Even if I'm an adulterer, a a murderer, a habitual liar, God saved me. Those are the antinomians. Those are false teachers as well. Then there's the pagans of our world that worship false gods, whether it's the God of the state or the God of human reasoning or the God of science. You got to watch for them as well. They're all around us. There are the statists that declare that the state is king and has authority over every sphere of a life. Another word for that is idolatry, where the state replaces God's authority. And then there are the cultural Christians. You know, those that are always hitching their wagon to whatever causes are popular in culture. They're into social justice, but only if the prime minister is also into the same cause. These are the folks whose authority really is the cultural mores of our society, not scripture. Well, in contrast to all these false ideologies, why don't we just be biblical Christians (laughs) and surrender ourselves to the authority of God's word, the supremacy of Christ and trust in him for our salvation. We learn how to do that, folks, by surrounding ourselves with godly people and by repudiating enemies of the cross of Christ. Third, this is more internal in nature, we, we wait, we wait. And by the way, waiting requires patience. So I just put down, we wait patiently. Here's what we wait for. Verse 20 and 21 read, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our master, And he's our Messiah who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. How many of you have dual citizenship? If you're a Christian, you have dual citizenship. Some of you may have dual or even three citizenships in this world. But if you're a Christian, you have dual citizenship. You're a citizen of heaven. A citizenship that has been paid for and secured by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're waiting for our Savior patiently to return. And when he does, he will, through a series of events, make all things new. And as part of that, we will be resurrected. Whether you died at sea and were eaten by a killer whale 
or whether you were shot on a battlefield or died from cancerous tumors. As a Christian, we believe in the bodily resurrection and that involves this actual body that we have will be resurrected from the grave or from the sea and we will be made new. Our bodies will be transformed and our bodies will be like the text says, Christ's resurrection body. We will receive a glorified body. By the way, Christ had as real of a body as one can have. Remember he talked about you know, fingers in the side, you can touch me, I'm actually real. He didn't just show up as an apparition. He actually was resurrected from the grave and so will we be. It's not that this body is going to be left behind, but we will receive resurrected bodies. This one will be made new in Christ. That's our heavenly hope. And in the meanwhile, we patiently wait for that. And by the way, patience, I'm not by nature a particularly patient guy. And some of you, you, know, you, you would excel in this virtue far beyond my natural capabilities. But one thing the Lord has enabled me to be patient in is I'm, I'm patiently waiting for his return. I don't waver in that. I believe that to be true. I have for many decades. And I'm not going to throw that away when the world starts to get rough and difficult. I will patiently wait. And it is patience, really, that is sort of the seedbed of spiritual fruit and vitality in our lives, nourishment. And it's all grounded and rooted in Christ's victory over death. So wait patiently. And then we have a final command, stand firm. This is where I got the title for the sermon series from, Beloved Stand Firm. This verse in particular, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore, so having, that means having heard all of this, having contemplated it all, therefore, my brothers, so he's speaking to Christians, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. It's a great way to end this section of scripture. Lots of encouraging considerations here. We treat each other as a family. Notice that he refers to the church in familial terms. He calls them brothers. It's such an encouragement to come into a place like this and interact with people that I know are my brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, we didn't come from the same mother and father. Some of us might be more closely related and some of us, you know, our most common ancestor might be 2,000 years ago. But we have a common father, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, who has blessed us and encouraged us and called us his own. We've been adopted into his family. And so that should affect the way that we treat each other. We're not just members of some org charitable organization or members of some faith group. I'm your brother if you know the Lord Jesus Christ and you're mine or my sister. And we need to encourage each other by treating each other as family and providing for one another, especially in a culture that is incredibly divided and is fracturing people so much. So folks, just think about this. Family makes decisions, not just for themselves, but they, they consider how their decisions impact other people. They stand up for other people that are victims of injustice and segregation and discrimination. 
They provide for and provide places of refuge for those that are victims of segregation or discrimination. It's not, well, pray for you, bro. Too bad that happened to you. Didn't happen to me. You know what I'm talking about. We stand together as a spiritual family because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We also love one another. Paul's affection here for this church is pretty encouraging. He says, whom I love and long for. One of the things I appreciate about the Apostle Paul is that he is bold, he's blunt, he's clear, and I aspire to those things as well. But some people would say, no, if you're, if you're bold and blunt and clear, you can't at the same time be soft-hearted and sensitive and loving to other people. You gotta be mushy. You gotta have a mushy personality to be all of those things. And the beautiful thing about Paul is he just brings it all together. He's not perfect. We're not saying he's perfect. He's not on par with Jesus, but he is bold and he's courageous. But at the same time, there's no question about the fact that he loved the people of God. He was thick-skinned but soft-hearted. And this is a good paradigm for us to pursue. He loved other people. He loved them. He longed to be with them. And he, was, he, he also was into them, you know, caring for one another. He, when he says, my joy and my crown, it's sort of like, you know, hey, be a blessing to me too. And you are being a blessing to me, but continue to be a blessing to me. My joy, you bring me joy by your obedience. My crown, you are the reward of my labors. This is essentially what Paul is saying to the Philippian church. You're one of the jewels in my crown that I will receive from Christ. So we, we reciprocate. The Christian life is not just, well, some give and others receive. Some lead and some follow, that's true. But everyone is giving and receiving whether they are leading or following in some way. And this is a, another blessing of being part of the spiritual family. And then we just stand firm and we stand firm in the Lord, not in our own strength, not in our own denominational distinctives. We stand firm ultimately in the Lord, in the Lord. It's good to study scripture. We should study scripture from cover to cover and we benefit from it. And then when we study scripture, we, we tend to systematize it. We develop our theological doctrines, you know, our views of the Holy Spirit and our views of Christ and sin and salvation and all these sorts of things. But unfortunately, we sometimes start to focus on our conclusions, but not the source of our conclusions. We start to focus on our theology, our systematic theology, our denominational distinctives. And that's what sort of determines who we're going to fellowship or not fellowship with. And we kind of lose sight of the scriptures itself and the Christ of scripture and the fact that our true and most pure fellowship is in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and in his redemptive plan for us. We stand firm in the Lord, in the Lord. And then we're reminded this is Paul speaking to them, my beloved, but we're also reminded as Pastor Andrew mentioned earlier today that you were loved by the church and you were loved by God. More by the second than the first, but we're working at that. We love one another because the Lord has first loved us. So brothers and sisters, let's stand firm 
Let's not compromise. Every compromise leads to another compromise. So let's stand firm. Let's know what really matters. Let's maintain our focus on Christ, our focus on his victory, our focus on the mission that he's called us to. Let's remind ourselves regularly of our identity, which is rooted in the perfection of Christ, not in our own ability to perform for him. And let's maintain our hope that one day he's coming back. All things will be made new and we will be resurrected from the dead. We will meet the Lord in the air and be with him forevermore. 